I used to hear these teachings on equanimity for years and I thought it was some far, far away goal that I would maybe get to at some point. It's interesting as a being a student of the Dharma for so long and learning about the Dharma and teaching is your ideas about things change so rapidly. Every once in a while I'll listen to an old Dharma talk that I gave and I'm like, I don't that was all wrong. I don't know what I was talking about back then. <laughs> and so this, this equanimity, I think, is important to understand as, a, uh, as an idea. So Cheryl talking about it from a wisdom component. There is an understanding that's being asked in equanimity. A framework for how reality really is. There's also a, uh, I guess you could say, a behavioral component. There's a way in which we can bring something to the table of reality other than our preferences. There's a responsive aspect to it. And then there's, there's an outcome, there's a measurable outcome, and that part of that outcome is understanding what I just did there, did that work? Was that a skillful, constructive outcome? So I don't think you need to be, uh, I don't think this equanimity thing is, is that difficult of an idea to understand or even that difficult of an experience to have. And, and the analogy of the sound is so good because what happened, you were just sitting in a room, sound arose and then it passed away. What happened in your psychological experience in that event? All kinds of things happen, right? Someone said gratitude, it's like someone said annoyance, right? That's what we create, we add that. We're always adding something to experience. And I think that when we talk about the two faces of equanimity, there's the, there's the wisdom face, the, the just understanding that we don't have agency over everything. We maybe have agency over very little of what happens in our, in our life and our experience. Man, I sit down and I have very little agency over what arises in my own mind, let alone what goes on out there. And that's one side of it, is that understanding. And then there's this, how do I relate to that? What's my attitude about that? What can I bring? to ease suffering in that moment. And there's a whole matrix, there's a whole set of ways in which we can learn how to become more adaptable, we can learn how to become more resilient in the face of adversity. And so for me, the long road of equanimity is just watching myself be able to handle conditions in my life that used to really caused me a lot of suffering. You ever have an experience in life where you just, five minutes after the experience, you're like, God, I handled that so well. What just happened there? <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> Who handled that situation like that? That's the type of thing I'm talking about. And I think we can think of many examples in life that that's true, whether you're a Buddhist practitioner or not. These are just natural elements of, of human adaptability. There are things that we can do. 
And so I think I like to think about the a the the root of this word equanimity. The think about this word that bothers me. That's a kind of a, a drag, and I don't really think any. I can't think of a way out of it. Is that it's just not a word that we use very much. It's really a word that you only hear in like a Buddhist context. And it's such a great concept and such a wonderful idea. I wish that the English language had another word that was more common. Balance is probably the best one. But even that's not a very specific term, is it? Balance. Looking at the Pali Upeka, the word literally means there in the middleness with hyphens between it. And, and I think that meditatively, in every moment, we're always in the middle of something, right? We're in the middle of just what just happened and what is about to happen. We're in the middle of the past and the future in every single moment where we reflect on what just happened and we predict what's about to happen. Anybody do any predicting about your next year on this day at all? <laughs> Forecasting, rehearsing, planning, fixing, controlling. You got a lot of shit done today, didn't you? <laughs> None of that stuff's ever probably going to happen. But if it does, you'll be ready. Right. And I often find the, the stress of my life, I, I find that there's an attitude, a nagging attitude in my mind. I always feel like I'm in the middle of something. I'm in the middle of this Dharma talk. I'm in the middle of this retreat. I'm in the middle of this thing. I'm in the, in the middle of something. And if we look at that analogy of being there in the middle, there's, there's a balancing component to that. Mindfulness allows us to balance my past and my future, my regrets and my hopes, my pleasure and my pain, all of these dialectical aspects of life. And we're always in the middle of conditions, coming and going all the time. Equanimity is a kind of landing in this groundless ground where we land in a perspective, actually, is the ground that we want to see, is that this is how it is. In our perception, the way that the mind perceives, the way that the mind sees things, in the, in the worldview that we talk about in a Buddhist perspective is this very wide worldview that life is both tragic and beautiful. It's a big range. And can you give me examples of beautiful things that have happened in your life? Can you give me examples of tragic things that have happened in your life? Do you have any, any suspicion to think that that's going to stop happening? So we, we really have to kind of come to terms with the fact that this is kind of how it goes these kind of opposing sets, that life is polarized on a wide range of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, beauty and tragedy, gain and loss. And that's a big range. And Cheryl talked about this right view. What we're trying to cultivate in practice is often said by many Buddhist teachers is that we want to see clearly and we want to respond wisely, which is the action items of equanimity. In view, right view, there's another problem, right and wrong. That's a lot of polarity. And that's tragic that we end up with this word right when we think about the Eightfold Path. But really, it's more accurate to say complete. 
What we want to see is not right view, but complete view. How are you seeing things completely? How are you seeing the big picture? We don't see the big picture. If we slow the mind down moment to moment, we just chop out a little segment of reality and that becomes a very limited view. A noisy kitchen. I'm not coming back here next year. <laughs> We're going to find another place. The other place is bad. This place is better, but it's still noisy. And it's like, and I could spend all day on that limited view. Everybody's upset. People are going to leave. What I'm going to tell them, I'm going to come up with some very kind, but witty criticism of the noise that they're making here. <laughs> And I got probably 20 minutes till the bell rings, so I probably can come up with something good. Very limited view. And we're always seeing things through this very narrow, not complete picture. And then we miss out on everything else. And I love that, the quote you read about Bahia. The, the, the Buddha asks us to do things that are so simple and so difficult to perform. In the herd, there's just a herd. I hear that, I go, bell. I like that bell. I think that's the bell from Melrose, right? Mm-hmm. like that bell. Santa Monica. Santa Monica. <laughs> I got a whole story about this bell. <laughs> I can't just hear the herd in the herd. I think of a herd of sheep or something. Like, what's Cheryl talking about? Her. I like proliferate and I proliferate and I proliferate. So hard to just have that objective awareness. And we add, we add, we add, we add, we add through that self referential, through our memories, through analysis. So in any given moment, we can learn to, with mindfulness, and sati is the word, recognize, to recognize a sound is a sound, a sight is a sight, a thought is a thought. And this is what I think where mindfulness is its most, has its most value, such a complex word, mindfulness, is in its Recognition of an object simply as an object. We talked about this in my second interview today. Everybody, we're talking about being able to categorize aspects of mind as just a, a thought habit, like planning. Anybody do any planning today? <laughs> the hard thing is to see the planning menu tab, but not do the drop down menu. <laughs> And they say, oh, planning again. Okay, recognize. Also part of an equanimity is to recognize, but also to allow. It's okay. I'm not hoping in that tab. Because I don't want to spend the next 30 minutes planning all my retreats for next year. And I notice for me, if I'm having a pleasant meditation, I'm planning my retreats for next year. And if I'm having an unpleasant meditation, I'm canceling my retreat. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to that. I'm not going to that. No. We're going to Disney World. <laughs> Screw it. 
I'm doing it. I'm going to get one of those credit cards with 0% finance and I'm taking the whole family because I'm having an unpleasant moment. Very limited, limited view. So we can recognize what's happening, we can try to allow it. To some degree, I think mostly what we do is we lower our expectations and raise our acceptance. That's pretty much it, I think. Did you come on this retreat with any expectations? Anybody, it never goes the way you plan. Unless you do a lot of retreats, then my expectations, like my body's gonna hurt, I'm gonna be tired. I'm going to wish I had really good coffee. I'm going to be pissed I didn't drive because if I drove, I could have snuck out and there's probably a coffee shop nearby. I think there's a Starbucks 21 miles that way. All of that kind of thinking. It also really, um, I think, kind of challenging because it really kind of, I feel like it puts a tremendous amount of responsibility on us. Because equanimity is always <coughs> dropping the ball on my side of the court. And I don't like that sometimes. I'm like, can I? There's got to be somebody who I can blame <laughs> for this. I mean, I have to take responsibility for everything in the way I relate to all of my experience. It doesn't sound very equanimous. That sounds very unbalanced. <laughs> and I think that's what makes the challenge as I kind of become more aware of my internal experience, my inner life. Um, just having equanimity with the mind-body process moment to moment is really challenging. But I think it's really, really drastically challenging when we try to have external equanimity towards people and the world and politics and the culture. I think it's really challenging to have equanimity with the state of the world right now, for example. It can be quite confusing. Because I think one of the things that mindfulness practice allows us to do and equanimity guides it in a, in a much more skillful way the more we practice, is it allows us to navigate complexity. We want things, I really am one of those people, I, I like things to be simple. I like things to be easy. I like it clean and organized. Oh, it makes me feel so safe just saying that. <laughs> Can't you all just do what you're supposed to do? Can't everybody just do what they're supposed to do and can't we all just get along? Can please, can we just do that? That's not how it is. And so part of it is trying to be willing to understand that navigating complexity comes at a cost and there's always a rub to it. Because things just aren't that simple. This is why meditation practices and dharma in a bigger scheme is such a challenging thing because the mind always wants to reduce it to some simple thing. We all want the one thing. 
every once in a while I'll meet people who ask me to do they're like well tell me what, just give me your meditation teacher just, what, what's the gist of it just give me the <laughs> what, just forget about all that complex what's the basic idea here I'm just like to stop asking that question <laughs> would be a good start And then if we add emotion, I think it's important to talk about, if we add emotion to the equation, it becomes a whole other game changer. Because trying to have equanimity or balance just in our psychological view about things and life in general is one thing, but having trying to have emotional equanimity is a whole other set of skills, which is really where I think Brahma-Vihara practice uh, is inserted into the game in a way that really makes a strong play for us to be very realistic about the emotional life. The emotional life is very complicated. Emotions rarely, they arise and they rarely meet our expectations. Much of the time, we don't even know what emotion we're having while we're having it. Other than the fact of knowing whether we like it or don't like it. And if I don't like it, who made me have it? <laughs> who made me have the bad feeling? <laughs> Every time I see that guy, I always have a bad feeling. <laughs> I stay away from that person. Shit, I need to stay away from most people. Making me have the bad feeling. Have you had the bad feeling? <laughs> Terrible. Terrible sadness. Anger. And one of the things that equanimity is certainly not, which I think is important to point out, it's not about being indifferent. It's not about being passive, as Cheryl said. It's not that sort of cold distance, like I'm above it all. Which spiritual teachers are certainly guilty of. Buddhist teachers can take that on sometimes. I know that sometimes at times I've confused my equanimity with just like I could just, I just could care less about you and your problems. That's not what we're talking about. That sort of cold indifference, or maybe we'd even say apathy. Which sometimes we have to resort to that kind of, in the face of overwhelm if we're too much, sometimes I think we have to check out a little bit. Can't always be up against all odds all the time. And the, the Brahma Vihara system is really, really well organized because it includes equanimity as sort of the fruit. The irony, I think, of all of this is that as Cheryl pointed out in the awakening factors and in, in mindfulness practices, uh, the outcome of sort of the, the development, the application, the development, and the fruition of mindfulness leads one into the experience of equanimity. The development of the heart, of metta, kindness, compassion, appreciation, also arrives into the experience of equanimity. So both sets of practices lead in the same 
direction, where mindfulness is more of the cognitive wisdom understanding component of equanimity. And the Brahma Vihara practice, the heart practice, is actually understanding the, the feeling, the emotion, the responsive element of equanimity. And I think that that's the much harder road to travel. I think this is one of the reasons why mindfulness has sort of exploded into the culture because as Americans we love to figure things out and we think we're going to outsmart everything. Outsmart my suffering. Get clever about my sadness. I'm going to outsmart this shame. I'm going to get so smart I'm not even going to feel it anymore. Understand it. I don't think it works that way. So a lot of the work around like things like emotional intelligence is or cultivating emotional balance is really that the meditative, the embodied emotional awareness aspect of really trying to begin to open to and understand uh, the emotions you're having whilst you're having them in as much of a discernible way as possible. Do you know anger when you're angry? Do you know, oh, I'm feeling angry. This is anger. What does anger really feel like? What does fear feel like? What does sadness feel like? They all feel quite different. What does joy feel like? What does contempt feel like? What are these emotional experiences and how do we respond to them skillfully or in the emotional intelligence parlance, they would say, instead of skillfully, they would say constructively. What's a constructive, skillful relationship to anger? Not to repress it. And one of the things that I've noticed in my practice and my learning is that sometimes if we become too Buddhist, we can start to kind of get derogatory around things like anger because we would say, well, greed, hatred, and delusion is bad and wrong, and we need to get rid of that, and I'm angry, and angrier and hatred is bad and wrong, and I shouldn't feel that. But that's not very realistic. Because when we look at things like anger, uh, it's actually really associated and very close and can often look a lot like compassion. Compassion is very important. But... It might sound weird to say or to hear, but for us to actually really embody and move from a place of compassion, there has to be some room for anger in that because anger sometimes is what can allow us to move in that direction, like setting boundaries with people. And if we really think about it pragmatically, the reason I get angry in the first place is because I care. And if something that I care about is being attacked or belittled or threatened, I get angry. Very natural. There's a lot of evolutionary reasons why that would happen. But the question is, can I be skillful in the arising of my anger and move and live from a place of compassion and skillfulness around anger, constructive anger, which... Some people would say, and I would probably agree, that actually constructive anger is compassion. 
we're able to do the right thing from a place of compassion doesn't mean the anger's gone. It means that we're able to work with it. So we have to be careful we don't try to get into these. And this, again, this is the heart of equanimity. Where the, that near enemy of indifference, we start to think, well, if I'm equanimous, it means I have no emotion anymore. Just sort of cold, emotional lobotomy. I used to think I had an equanimity with an emotional lobotomy. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I was pretty psyched about that. I was like, you mean you can get rid of all this? I'll meditate my face off. <laughs> I have found that that's not the case. So when we look at metta as being sort of the baseline of the practice that Cheryl introduced today, metta, we could say, is, is like the seed and maybe equanimity is the fruit. But metta has an ability to transform. So in the distressing moments, when we're challenged, when things are difficult, when things are hard, when there's painful memories, experiences, that, that metta it needs to be supported by compassion. Sometimes we call this karuna. So metta in that condition would change and would kind of metamorphosize into a kindness that's a caring kindness. And equanimity would know that this is a right moment for the compassion because I'm in some distress, I'm in some pain. So again, it is that cognitive aspect of it, but then there's the relational aspect of it. But you don't need to do that all the time. Compassion is not something you need to have in every moment. But there are probably times in life, and you can probably self-diagnose right now where you would have liked to have more access to that. Which is one of the reasons why we teach Brahma Viharas because we want to learn how to cultivate that so that when my life puts me in a situation where it would be helpful I've I got a little bit of it in my store bank. You can't just decide to have compassion. It doesn't really work that way, does it? Same with like forgiveness, for example. You can't always just decide to forgive. And so in that particular set of circumstances, we want to be able to notice in a moment of experience when compassion would be useful. And then we use it until the conditions change and we don't we can kind of put it aside. And then we have the other side of that coin, or the far side of compassion, which would be appreciation. This word mudita doesn't translate well into English. Sometimes called gentle joy, appreciative joy, empathetic joy. The word that makes the most sense to me is actually this word gratitude, which is being able to with the emotional heart aspect of experience to respond towards things in our lives that are good, that are pleasant, that are agreeable, that are beautiful, that are connected, that are... But we have to recognize that before we can meet it. And I think this is so hard for us because of the common tendency to take for granted. And I know that for me currently, this is where my practice feels the weakest. Because I feel, I'm hard on myself in this capacity because I often feel 
like I, sh- I feel like I have a lot of things to be grateful for, but I don't feel that grateful. <laughs> and I beat myself up for it. And I'm like, you're teaching people about this stuff and you don't even have any. <laughs> and it's probably just a, a result of I have, you know, I wouldn't say I have a very daily or I don't have a regular appreciative joy practice. I've practiced it on and off for many, many years, but it currently is an area, and I think that what my teachers have told me is that actually this, this tends to be one of the hardest, actually, for people. Because A, it can tap into our low self-worth if we have some of that in our system, which I'm certainly guilty of, or I don't feel deserving of things sometimes. Or I, I just don't recognize. I'm always, I want it to be shinier. I want it to be better. I want there to be more salt and more sugar. You know, it's that kind of the mind's tendency to take something that's pretty good and want to improve it. And so we, we, we have to train that way. We have to be able to enjoy joy. And there's a, a researcher who I really love. Uh, his name's Mario Martinez, and he's been studying these uh, kind of embodied emotions for a long time. And he believes that, that joy is a horrifying emotion for most people. And that's his direct quote. He says, people, they don't know what to do with it. We're either scared of it, of joy, because we think it's not going to last, and when it goes away, then what am I going to do? Or we don't feel like we deserve it. Or it makes us exuberant. And so we do have to spend some time perhaps practicing these things. So again, there's that recognizing and allowing. Recognizing goodness and success and gain in our lives and allowing ourselves to participate in that wholeheartedly. Whether or not we feel like we deserve it, whether or not we are afraid it's going to pass away and then what will be disappointed... And so, this is really the heart of equanimity. It's so easy to sit up in front of the room and say, you should have compassion for your pain. So easy to say, you should appreciate the good things in your life. I can say it a lot more easily than I can perform the task of doing it. But yet, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to continue to try. So again, when we find ourselves sitting in this matrix of, of changing conditions, part of, I think, the learning process of these practices is, is very much an unlearning process of our conditioning. And trying to be very realistic about what equanimity would look like for us. Because I think it has a wide range. I think there can be a very low-grade sense of equanimity where there can just be like noise in the next room and I can practice with that. But then there can be uh, the death of a person that we love. That's a different range of equanimity. Ending of jobs and uncertainty about 
our finances or our role in the world and our lives. It's hard to have equanimity when the stakes are high. And, you know, part of equanimity is to recognize that sometimes the stakes are high. And I'm not a very goal-oriented teacher, per se, but I think currently I feel all of the practices that we offer and all of the things that we do in meditation or dharma or however you hold this kind of work for yourself is, I think it's very accurate and hopeful to see ourselves as best we can heading in this direction of having equanimity. And taking responsibility for what arises in our own experience. And I think that the nature of all of that aspect, especially of, of dealing with, uh, and I'll talk about this tomorrow afternoon more, the, the polarization of, of compassion and appreciation is this, uh, Charles Darwin would say, that the, what allows us to be sympathetic or empathetic creatures is what needs to happen is cooperation. Can we cooperate with sorrow? If we can cooperate with sorrow, we can develop compassion and we can develop equanimity. If we can cooperate with joy, but sometimes you think, well, I can totally cooperate with joy. Really? Are you sure? Are you for sure, for sure? Maybe you don't cooperate with that one so well. Or you overlook it or you underlook it. And that's allowing people to extend gratitude towards us. And to uh, Some of us don't like compliments. Some of us, anybody get any Christmas presents they felt like undeserved of. Or, you know, we don't always receive goodness and abundance and, and generosity very well. We might think that we do, but in the, in the face of that, sometimes it really isn't so easy for us. So I think when we're dealing with our mind-body system, whether you look at it as the big view of equanimity, your whole life and all of the things that happen, or the, the moment-to-moment tracking of what arises in the mind-body system, equanimity is, is a really, really great ally in learning to have that wisdom side of it, of being able to recognize as best you can objectively what it is that is arising in your experience, whether it's pain on your knee, noise on the other side of the wall, pleasant contentment in the mind and heart, and then the more challenging task of allowing yourself to be in that experience. So that's a lot of perspectives on equanimity. So thank you, Cheryl, for your um, you. reflections and uh, something to think about. We, I want to offer that for your reflection. So thank you for your attention, and we'll just sit for a few minutes before we move into a little bit of walking and then one more sit before the night is out.